Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Welcome everyone to another uh, podcast for our 100 Days and Beyond, the special place where we meet and greet and in, entertain you, hopefully, with uh, some really good stories, good background information and experience for those uh, or from those people that have been there, done it, seen it, and probably made a few mistakes along the way. <laughs> I think I think James is a, probably a really good example of, uh, of, a, of, I would say, probably entrepreneur turned turned even more of an entrepreneur getting involved in, in growing businesses, but at, at scale, I think. Um, I think I, if, if I wondered you, where you were going with that, Dudley, whether you were just going to yeah. go with the mistakes thing or, or you were going you were gonna, uh, to push out on that one. I think I think there's value in mistakes anyway, but uh, <laughs> as long as you learn from them, I think. What are they? Uh, I, I remember my father telling me, as long as not even a donkey falls in the same hole twice, and uh, and I think sometimes uh, even I've fallen in the same hole twice because I just didn't think it through properly. But I think if you go back in in a career, I mean, if you if I look at your bio and your career, James, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, you 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 really started and exited and 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 built businesses before you got involved in in Cap EQ. And I just want to quickly give the audience a quick uh, uh, introduction. So James is a co-founder from Cap EQ, B Corporation certified M and A fundraising and strategy consul consulting. Um, I want you to give us a bit of a background because I'm going to I'm going to pick and unpack some of your the pointers you make on your on your LinkedIn bio, and uh, I'm going to get I'm going to challenge you a little oh, bit. Oh dear today. lord! <laughs> <laughs> okay, darling. <laughs> Looking forward. To it. Tell us about your journey. How did you get here? You know where where are you right now? And, and uh, let, let's kickstart this thing. Oh, so really, I'm in a really, really good place in life at the moment. But the journey to get here, I think your your comment about mistakes is absolutely bang on. The the um, the the key the key attribute I think of any entrepreneurship um, is you you got to pick yourself up when you get things wrong, and you have to learn from them. And if you're not getting things wrong, you're probably not trying hard enough. And and good lord, I I get things wrong frequently. So um, hopefully I'm learning at the same time. So I I came out of a fifth generation family business in nails and fixings um started the started my first business when i was 14 building computers back when uh, computers were hard to make and the parts were hard to get um and then uh, briefly down dallied with uh, city life working as uh, for bar cap and uh, then went and opened a fish and chip shop and I remember all my friends saying to me at the time what on earth are you doing why are you giving up a, a role in the city going to a fish and chip shop um, and it turned out that selling fish and chips was actually far more profitable and a lot more fun than uh, working in uh, in the city. Um, <laughs> so I uh, grew that business and it was a really, really high class, high quality business. Um, grew that into eight, nine different locations, um, exited those, bought another nine or ten businesses um, and then uh, took a big risk in 2007. Um, 
buying a business for a pound, um, not knowing as much about M&A as I should do, um, and bought all the debts rather than uh, doing what most people would do, which would be not to buy the debts. And uh, that, uh, that turned out that business needed refinancing, had about uh, 25 million of debt, um, needed refinancing. It was paying 34% over base and turned out that 2008 refinancing was difficult. Um, so uh, that that turned out to be an expensive, expensive lesson. Um, so yeah, so that was that was not part of the plan. Um, so so since then we've been um, since then I've been uh, just reassessing some of my candidacy routes, um, and then got into M and A about 15 years ago, partly to try and help people, partly because I love it. Um, partly B because you get to meet some amazing people and work with some amazing clients and uh, partly to help people not make the same mistakes I made in M&A. Um, so, you know, that all comes together. I spent the last 10, 12 years working in uh, sort of lower mid-market um, and then two years ago uh, set up with a colleague, Cappy uh, Q, to uh, really work in the impact space and to hopefully run M&A transactions within a more ethical focus which I suspect we'll probably cover, if you're not too mean. Dudley, I think you're on, I think. Yeah, yeah I think I've got myself on mute. So just, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm loving that uh, ethical part, because if I look at your summary, you talk about co-founder uh, co director of CAPEQ, but I'm, I really like that, that part where you, you talk about providing ethical mergers and acquisitions, advice, transaction leadership, and strategy consulting, and 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 that that word ethical, I think um, some people in in my experience overuse that or wrongly use it in unethical ways. <laughs> um, but I think it's very very important to to actually have ethics in this space, or else you won't survive. I, I think these things catch up to one, and and I think if if if, if you don't have that as a as a core value. And that's my belief anyway. Tell us a bit more about why you felt the, the need to put it ethical in there. Okay, so whilst I wouldn't disagree with your point that if you don't have an ethical basis, you don't survive, the reality is in M&A, your clients only do the transaction once. So you, you don't lose your repeat customers. So the problem is that there is a big there is a big element when you look at anything in life where the business the business model is based on a single single event in that client's life. Actually, it opens that that transactional world up to an ethical issue where people can act unethically because the downside doesn't really exist as strongly as it does for other customers. Where you know if you're McDonald's and you you know you you've got horse meat in your beef. You know that that will kill your business really quickly. So people will stop buying from you. That's you know there's no equivalent in the M and A world of that. It's very it's very difficult for you know business owners don't talk very much to each other actually. So it's very difficult for that to to, to spread. And there's an awful lot of conversation about ESG in M and A, but what you hear is ESG. You know, are our clients? Do our clients have ESG? What do the funds think about ESG? We never hear, or very rarely hear, us talk about. You know, how do we act as advisors? What are what are we what are we doing that's ethical? And you know, for the last fifteen years, you know, there are some amazing people in there. Okay, there are some really clever, really honest, really lovely people. There's also some there's also some people where where there's also some businesses 
that don't act in the best interest of their clients and they're not necessarily the small ones you know that i see that across a whole range where they're doing things that they don't consider to be unethical but they because they don't think about it like that they don't they don't consider whether they're harming their client you know they have a different focus and that some of that stuff needs to change and we need to think about that a bit more in our industry yeah, I, if you remember that that '80s movie with it was '80s uh, Gordon Gecko, that whole um, stripping of assets and all that. And I think I think it's come a long way for, since that since, since those days. But and that Wait, was okay. You, you say enjoyable. that. You say that, and that. But is that true though? I mean, uh, so uh, you know, we all know some of the. You know, you look at things like phones for you and, you know, there, there's consistent, consistent headlines about companies involved in M&A where the transaction has not been to the benefit of large numbers of stakeholders. You know, it's not been beneficial to the staff, it's not been beneficial to the customers, it's sometimes not even beneficial to, the, to, to, to a big chunk of the shareholders. And that's, and that's not changed. Those headlines continue to occur. And actually, on a, on a long term, that's, you know, value destructive rather than value creative. Um, I mean, look, the, uh, think about uh, and think about it at a very basic level. You know, there's there's different areas of M&A that you know you can look at uh, blue chip M&A or the really big stuff. You know, um, mm. top end, uh, you know, billion plus. Asda, for example, recently got sold. They've they've, they've got now got 6.8 billion of debt to service, and the equity the equity they put in was 800 million. Well, Asda now has to service 6.8 billion. Okay, it turned, it's got a massive turnover, but that six point eight billion now means you can't reinvest it in the business. Is that is that the right answer for the for the for the for the customers for the staff? Maybe, maybe not. I love it. I just also love the passion in which you explain it. So, 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 so you've um, you, you're coming through with flying colours, James. Uh, you're definitely <laughs> coming back to me with <laughs> with some really great answers. I appreciate that. So, and it really comes out in your in your profile as well because you talk about. Um, um, a combination of tireless energy, boundless patience, relevant expertise, cross-border experience, and, and good humor that makes a difference between transactional process and frustrating setbacks. And, and that's what I was hoping to get, and we got it in the first few minutes. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad I haven't disappointed. I mean, look, we're, we're really lucky. Is we, we, you get to meet, you get clients that you really, you really um, make friends with. And that's the lovely thing about our business that you, I'm just, I've got so many friends I didn't have before who were ex-clients and that's, that's amazing. That's a really nice place to be and that's how it should work. Yeah, it is how it should work. And, and, and you've got so many stakeholders in any deal, in any transaction and uh, you've done um, uh, over 40 M&A transactions. Um, so you must have seen an, an immense amount of varying Oh, from valuations to structuring through to the actual PMI, which is the post-merger integration work or any any sort of follow-on on that. And and as you talk about value creation, it's it's it obviously value creation sits in the eye of the beholder as well to a certain extent because it's value creation for one, but not necessarily for, for others. <laughs> I think it's an unbalanced thing. But anyway, tell us a bit about that. That's an interesting viewpoint, Ali. It, it can be unbalanced, but it doesn't have to be. And mm -hmm. actually, the best transactions, if you look at, if you take a, if you take a, a business to market and you, uh, and you go through a rigorous process and you work really hard and you, you, you reach out to as many potential strategic acquirers as possible or interested investors as possible, what you 
um, what you get is a range of interests. And actually what what we're guilty of as advisors, and, and, and you see this frustration with acquirers an awful lot who say, we won't engage with advisors. And usually that's because the advisors are not looking at the transaction as a whole. What they're looking at is just their client and they're saying, well, well let's see how, what I can get over on the other party without understanding that value creation is where the where money drops out. So this idea that you can just put people in and put the other side in, in, a, in a pot and keep them there and not engage with them just doesn't work. If what you actually do is engage with them and work out what they want to, how they want to create value, how, what their PMI process looks like, actually why are they investing, what, what do they want to get out of this, and then help them understand that value and help them to create that value. Actually, you know what? Suddenly they say, actually, this is more valuable than we thought it was. And then suddenly you're getting value out of the transaction of the client. And then suddenly the client's enjoying the journey. And suddenly things like earnouts, which where you know, clients always come out with a hate, you know, we're not accepting an earnout. Well, you know what? If you give the client a range of options, sometimes they do they do they do choose a transaction with earnout because they understand what's going on, because they spent time with the acquirer and the acquirer understands the seller. And you know, depending on what side of the table you're sitting on, there's there's good understanding and, and that leads to mm. post-merger integration that works. And that leads to value creation. And there's at the moment there are too many MA transactions that fail. And that's partly that's partly unfortunately because the MA advisors don't spend enough time helping both parties to integrate. Yeah, and it has got I'm guessing, uh, and you you you'll probably uh, come come back with a with a really good answer. I'm guessing it's got a lot to do with with uh, obviously client relationship, but education and 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 getting people to talk and getting people to understand each other's positions it's not it's not really um it's not sort of a, a football match if you like there doesn't have to be a winner and a loser there they can everyone can can win and it's it's that sort of process and i'm i'm you you very much from an advisory point of view um sell side as far as i know you you work a lot on the sell side but on the buy side tell us a little bit about sort of where you sit in terms of that whole transaction yeah, so so about sixty percent of our transactions are sell side, about thirty uh, percent are buy side. We typically act on behalf of PLCs, and um, PLCs are larger corporates who are looking to add, have some strategic rationale. And we are uh, on the buy side. We are great believers in what you call programmatic M and A. So instead of looking for that one big change event that's going to shift their business completely and, and really you know alter the trajectory of their business. You know, there's a ton of risk on that for an acquisition for an acquirer. What we're looking to do is help them make strategic acquisitions continuously that that change the outcome of the business, but actually allow them to integrate them effectively and help them to actually make that integration and actually help. And part of that is to help the other side to actually show us what what we need to see. And you're right. Some of that is, in, and when you sit on either side of the table, a lot of that is expectation management. A lot of that is. Um, training a lot of that sometimes you know we'll sit we'll sit the other side from a when we sit sitting on the buy side we'll sit the other side from a potential target you know and we'll say right well, you need some help you need to go out and get yourself some advisors and we'll we'll signpost them to some guys that we know are really good and not because there's a there's any any uh, it, there's any relationship between those advisors and actually usually we're pointing to people we know are going to be pain in the backside but we know they're being a pain in the backside because they help them and that's the right thing to do because they need that advice and that advice eventually helps the transaction flow better and become more successful and that is the key and that's a key you know that's a key thing transaction support is a really key area in, 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 in to get transactions complete sometimes 
What, what I found most fascinating, even even chatting to you, to 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 your your team at CapEQ, has been has been that ability to to put deals together in terms of um, the structuring and also helping understand the dynamic of what happens after. What you know, especially from a strategic point of view, you know, it's a great idea to have it some. Um, a, a corporate decision being made, you know, we should be doing acquisitions in the space. We should be adding in uh, additional businesses. So, so, but, but also thinking in terms of things like sustainability, how do we make sure that the businesses we are acquiring will actually keep move us into the next sort of phase of the markets, et cetera. But at the same time, potentially making um, acquisitions that are non non core, but can, can, bolster the business in 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 other places and it, it's it's a lot more than just sort of buying additional product or additional geographic areas and etc cetera, etc cetera. so t- tell us a bit about that mix so sort of, wh- wh- what have you seen that's uh, that's out there in the market from a corporate so be very much corporate strategic buying at at this stage so what what are people doing in 2022 oh see that's 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 really interesting so what's what's changing actually is the funding of transactions in a lot of respects so for a long time uh for a long time actually uh, corporate acquirers were struggling to match the valuations of uh, private equity so and the private equity had so much money the g the the lps were you know putting so much funds into the PE houses that uh, the private equity had so much dry powder and still does, but it's, it's just starting to, to fall back a little bit. That actually the opportunities for the, for the corporates just, just wasn't, weren't there like they used to be. And that's now changing a little bit, starting to see that change a little bit. And what you find is that corporates have got a lot of money on the balance sheet quite often. Um, they see that they have to keep changing. They have to keep evolving. They have to keep moving. Um, you know, we, the, the guys we work for tend to, tend to actually have some ethical impact so uh, that colors that colors what we see don't it? there's a kind of a you know it, it's 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 not like we're working for weapons manufacturer and saying let's go out and buy a plastics recycling business you know we, we tend to be in the in the in the sectors in renewables and and health and education and that kind of space um but i guess what we're seeing is is a, a greater focus on what drives actual value so there's you go back 10 years ago and the, 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 there was a corporate rush just to buy anything. You know, conglomerates were quite common. Actually, there's a lot fewer conglomerates now. You know, the SPACs didn't really take off in the UK for, for reasons I think we probably all know. Um, the, and therefore, what you're seeing is much more strategic acquisitions where the corporates are really looking at acquiring stuff that, that changes their trajectory that isn't just volume or, or um, client base or geography it's something that really adds value intrinsic value that they can't get nothing else scarcity value there's a there's a drive to scarcity value that has always been there but i think it's probably becoming more focused and there is a drive that people understand that that consumers are focused and it is ultimate consumers that drive everything in our in our Know, in the UK economy, um, the consumer's focus is changing, and therefore businesses are changing with that as well. And that's mm. and that's been that's that's been a clear change as well. Is that, is that kind of answer your question? Yeah, 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 absolutely, and 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 very well too. I I want I want to you touched on ESG and and a lot of these um, 
you know, these, I mean, these acronyms and that, but I mean, environment, social governance, et cetera. I mean, that's been around for a while and that, and, and often people hide, or I've seen PE firms and that hide behind that in terms of that's, you know, that it could maybe be in their brief, but it's also, but there's a new thing that's popped up, not relatively new, but it's, it's now becoming more and more prominent. That's EDI, which is that whole equity, diversity and, and inclusion um, you know, that acronym is popping up from time to time. Do you see it a lot uh, or is that just something that is spoken about and, and, and generally not really implemented? Is it, you know, when you get down to a hardcore transaction and you, you're talking about sort of adding value, do, growing strategically, do, do those things become a strategic advantage or is it just something that people talk about? Do you mean EDI especially or ESG and EDI as a whole? Well, the, the two of them or both or, or either or. or... So, I, I, it's, so there's, there's, a, there's a whole, that's a, that's, a, that's a short question with a very, very long answer. I'm calling it a hot potato. <laughs> I'm trying to pass it back to you. Um, <laughs> the, okay, so uh, there's... So we're a B Corp. Let's start there. So we're a B Corp. So uh, this, there's two answers to this. There's one is going back to what I said earlier, which is talking about ESG from a client's perspective and a funder's perspective and talking about ESG from the M&A, the M&A uh, provider's perspective. In transactions, um, ESG, EDI, from an M&A provider's perspective doesn't, from our perspective doesn't exist. I don't see it talked about in our industry. From the transactional perspective, so that is the, the counterparties in the transaction and the funder, hmm. there are some people where they are genuine, absolutely focused on stakeholder um, impact. And stakeholder will mean everybody, the community, the staff, um, the, the, the customers, you know, the, the, the wider community, I mean, you know, whether that is EDI or other, um, you know, there, and there are, and actually we're a B Corp because of, uh, of a prime equity fund, Bridges Fund Management, which was one of the first B Corps um, in the UK. Uh, I met them as part of a transaction that we did with them and was really impressed by that, by that firm who absolutely lived what they said. And that was a, just a revelation to me it was an absolute revelation and and there are a couple of others as well who who you know i'm not going to start mentioning everybody but they, those guys they were they absolutely lived as they said they did um does it provide a does it provide a commercial advantage in some areas it's a commercial necessity so but they're in the sectors where you'd expect it to be hmm. in the sectors where it doesn't does it provide a commercial advantage in the long term, my view is it does, but you have to, the, the diff, one of the difficulties we have at the moment is we all talk about ESG, but then don't talk about profit. And so we're a B Corp, so we're a not just for profit, but we are absolutely for profit. You know, if you, if you look at, you know, conscious capitalism is a space that doesn't preclude making a profit. And that's, you get this dichotomy when you hear people, where you hear talking heads on the news talking about this and they talk about ESG as if suddenly it precludes profitability it absolutely doesn't it, the two have to go hand in hand you know capitalism has changed the world for a better place every single thing everything that's been invented has been invented because of capitalism now that doesn't mean that capitalism has just been a good thing right it, that's that's 
that's not that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that, that in general, as a force for good, it absolutely exists. Mm. But it needs to be tempered. It needs to be tempered with more than just the thought of the capital. It has to think beyond the capital. It has to be, think beyond the capital investors. But it has to include the capital investor. You can't have a transaction where the investors invest money and don't get a return. Because why would they invest the money? That that's just that's just crazy. So uh, if you if you think of ESG as something where it gives more stability, it um, allows people to feel more in control. It allows uh, people to be more supportive. It gets gets consumers to, and again, consumers drive our economy. So it is ultimately consumers that drive this. It allows consumers to make a better choice for your product. Then eventually it comes back. But it's not a short-term game. It's not a. It's not a short-term. Let's do this, and we'll make money tomorrow. It is longer term, and actually, probably one of our biggest issues over the past twenty years has been the, the reduction in in timeline. You know, we used to think we used to think fifteen, twenty, thirty years ahead. That seems to have come down. You know, in politics, business, it seems to have been brought forward and forward. It needs to push back out again. We need to be doing things that help people 15 years in advance. And ESG is part of that. You know, that that longer term view. Because in 15 years, when you built a, you know, whether it's a nuclear, what do you think, whatever you think about nuclear or or wind or or wherever you think, you know, these things take time to get a return. But then when they get a return, suddenly you get a massive beneficial hit from it. Yeah, I love that's a that's real that's that's a great answer. But but cap the the, the capital and, and and the actual return on investment is massively important. But co- uh, corporate acquirers um, don't necessarily, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned timeline because that was one of the the things I I want to just bring bring it out a little because being being on the uh, sort of corporate advisory side of things where where you're helping with uh, larger entities do strategic acquisitions often. Um, it appears to me, and again, you're going to have to just tell me more on your experiences, is in comparison to private equity, private equity has to deliver on their their mandate, whatever it is, in terms of the fund that they've created. They have to deliver within a certain period of time, and they literally build value through a consolidation of a multiple number of entities thereby increasing the, the, the turnover and, and EBITDA values and, and getting higher multiples at, at exits and not necessarily growing or, or doing a lot more in terms of PMI and growing the, 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 the portfolio businesses. Corporate acquirers, on the other hand, they would do more of a strategic purchase, but the PMI side of things, the post-merger, uh, post-merger integration work and, and the actual uh, value creation is a lot more than just bundling a whole lot of uh, companies together. However, it is advantageous to add additional revenue to your top line. I mean, that obviously is a good thing as a PLC, just from a from a CEO point of view, being able to say, hey, we've had X percent growth. However, on, on, on the flip side, it will take longer to get more value creation, not just by bundling or by, by putting a few platform businesses together and a few add-ons. Would you agree with that? It, it no. should take longer. No. No, I don't. Okay. No, I don't. I, I don't agree. I don't agree. So, um, 
Okay, so so look at the typical PE fund, right? It's got ten-year time horizon, um, which you know they need to be out at ten years. Okay, so so I think we all understand that. Um, you know, so that typically three to seven-year hold period is is pretty typical. I mean, I you know, I'm, and I'm discounting family offices here. Okay, so let's talk about you know vanilla PE. Um, you know, they need to be out. So yes, they have to value create, but some of that value creation is within is within uh, financial engineering. Not so much anymore, but you know that still exists as a as a as a as, a, as an entity. Um, and sometimes they do. There is some PMI going on when they're, when they're, you know, especially if there's a buy and build or a bolt-on um, acquisition going on. So that that does happen. There is value creation there. Um, but if you've got a genuine strategic acquisition, you know, typically, you know, within 12 months, if it's the right acquisition and you understand why you're acquiring it and you understand what you're actually, you understand. Let me get this. Let me let me rephrase that. If as an acquirer you know why you should be acquiring something and how a target fits into that strategy, then the ability to drive value out of that transaction is very quick. Now, the, 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 one of the core errors, core errors that we see is that acquirers don't really know why they're acquiring. So what you often find is they're acquiring because we want to get bigger. And actually, that's a really bad reason to acquire. Because what we see is, yes, you get bigger, and then you divide your management time between two entities that aren't one, and suddenly both of them fail, falter, start to erode, and then you leave the one you bought, and they get sold cheaply. And that's a really common M&A story. And that's partly because the advisor, with the either because the management team, the, the C-suite, haven't sat down and thought about this, or they haven't had an acquirer, they haven't had an advisor who said, you need to think about this. You know, what, what is it that you're trying to add? What are you trying to solve? Where are you mm. trying to move to? Um, or they've gone off and found a target that they really like that seems cheap and they've gone off and acquired it. And those, those elements, you know, that's not a strategic acquisition. And too many transactions aren't strategic. If it's genuinely strategic, then value drops out really quickly. Yeah, that, we, we've we've seen that happen really quickly. Yeah, but that that's why I I think it's so critical to have the right advisors, guys like yourselves, on a a strategic discussion long before you even look at what target to go for. What you know, what is it we're trying to do with the business? Where are we trying to go, etc. Because I had a conversation this morning. I had a meeting with with, with the guy uh, that I'm at, that I'm doing some advisory work on, and he he he's in he's in aquaculture. I mean, he's got you know he's entirely in aquaculture, and and he says, look, um, he came across uh, there's this hotel chain that he thinks he should get involved in. It's like, <laughs> like, like why why would you do that? Why would you? You know, that's just not even close to what you're doing right now. Yeah. You can maybe supply a bit of fish if you like to your hotel, but but I mean, I don't think people can eat, eat that much. But I think I think what happens a lot, and this is you're gonna have to just reply on 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 my on my ex crazy example. But you see this all the time where people say, "Hey, my business, is, I want to exit my business. I'm going to approach a number of who people I think or organizations I think who might be in the market to buy. They go and approach an entity." And he says, oh, this looks like a good idea. And then they buy it. And as opposed to saying, oh, wait a minute, We've, we actually need to decide on, on, on our strategy going forward, have the right advisors in place, and then roll that plan out. And if, if, if whatever they come across in terms of target fits, that, that would be right. Is that, is that, would that be a, a fair uh, I think view? That's probably, I think, I think yeah, in a broad brush approach, that's probably fair. 
I think that, you know, but uh, uh, to, to give a lot of acquirers their due, it's actually quite hard to find advisors who who can take that advisory perspective because they need to have some commercial background. They need to have some ability to understand their, their own their client's business. And that takes a bit of commercial now. So that's not that common to find. Um, and from a seller's perspective, you know, if it's a retirement sale, which frequently businesses are of multiple sizes, you know, they, they don't, they're often, they start out with, I'm just retiring, I want to leave. And quite often, our, one, of our, one of our biggest pieces is to say to people, please come and talk to us five years before you want to exit, because then at least we can help find the right party, we can help add value, we can help steer you into the right place, we can actually think about your staff. And because what happens is they start, sellers particularly start off with one view that says, we want to retire and exit. And then when you really get into the detail of, okay, what do you want to happen to your staff and what do you want to happen to your clients? And, and they get, they're very, you know, they spent years building the business and it turns out they're very, very, um, uh, caring about about all of these, and suddenly if they're if they sending someone where they're, they're just going to strip the business, the client's like, oh, I, I don't like this. And it, but if they don't have any choice at that point, then they're in a really bad place. And mm. unfortunately, you know, I've only ever seen that happen once, and you know, it's one of those ones that you know fills me with pain still. Um, and I, I don't even like thinking about it. But you know, it was it was just a scenario that that just couldn't be done any other way there was no we had no other ability there was no movement in that transaction it was one acquirer and one exit that was like but had that particular person come to us a few years earlier we could have found a different route to exit and so that's probably the biggest problem and and it and it's a problem for acquirers because sometimes the timing has to be right for two two entities can be the right entity but they have to align at the right moment and sometimes you need some time to get that moment to, to be right so it's not always a, a one hit, you know, I think, and again, it's back to ethics from an advisory perspective. We are really bad at being honest with our clients on, the, on, on both the buy side and the sell side. And we need to be better at this. We need to be honest with, with and there are, sorry, I'm, and I'm painting our industry badly. And that's not fair for a big chunk of our industry who are very good at being honest with our clients and being, being very good at advisory. At the lower end of the market, particularly, we are very bad at being honest with our clients and, it, and it, unfortunately it paints the whole of our industry in a very bad light so there is a bit of a, well, a lot of work done to be honest with clients about actually what the outcome may be and what they need to do and what they need to think about and, and what outcome they need to be thinking about and with acquirers as well who you know you need to be very honest with them about what they can actually achieve and what's you know if they look at a target what's what difficulties they're going to have and how hard is pmi going to be because one of the things you frequently see is people not saying to them, have you thought about culture? Have you thought about who the people are? Have you thought about, you know, what are they actually like emotionally? If you don't get that right, then you're on a bit of a behind to nothing before you start. Yeah. And I think, I think sales side could easily be painted. And, and what I, um, what I like about CapEQ, especially, and that's why I'm speaking to you and, and a number of, of, of your colleagues um, is the fact that you got the business acumen, you've got the the you've you've been you've been in your own business before, you've actually established, you've exited, you've done you've done the hard yards, if you like, of understanding business and, and what it's like actually owning a business and and get and, and exiting it. But but more so on the sales side, the problem with with the sales side is that the the automatic sort of if it's a mid mid size entity 
let's call it a retirement sale, the, the, the natural tendency is to look for a broker, for instance, or if it's a bigger business, it's sort of, I'm going to an investment bank or so, something like that. Not necessarily getting the business ready or complete, because I, I mean, I like to see it in like a checkbox, like what makes a business complete? Do you have all your systems, process, procedures, or do you have your, you know, your system, uh, your, your software, your culture, and, and all that stuff sorted? That's a complete business. And not all businesses are complete by the time the retirement's supposed to happen. <laughs> so no. so from, a, from an advisory point of view, if you look at a sales side, it's, it, I think from a differentiator, I think CapEQ for me differentiates yourself by having done so many transactions, but also having been in business yourself. So the acumen side of things, the ability to see a business for what it is. And I think when you work with a sales side, the to get in under the hood, to better understand the business before you go to market is, is you need a bit of time. You need to have a bit of runway. You can't be like, get a call this week and I want to have it on the market next week. It, it, that stuff doesn't seem to work very well. What is your, what is your view on that? No, no, I look that. Uh, you can do things quickly by exception, but it's very, very rarely optimal very rarely optimal I mean, uh, we've got a client at the moment that we have worked with for about 18 months on a no fee basis we, we've just been advising them on a monthly basis with a phone call taking time to understand the business to really get under the business and help them to understand what they need to change and they've gone on a process of changing um and they and because of that they were recently approached and have uh, you know received a uh, they received a, an approach from somebody that they would never have received had they, had they not spent the time to change their business. And, you know, they're very clear that a lot of that is down to some of the advice we've managed to give them over time because we have some of that background in terms of commercial knowledge and some, we, we managed to put some of that time in. Um, and that's and that's absolutely critical. And so the, the more you can spend doing that and you can look at, as you say, you know, uh, processes, um, you know, uh, owner reliance, even in the you know, even up to 100 million pound businesses where there isn't a professional C-suite, owner reliance continues to be a problem. Um, but, you know, e even when there is a professional C-suite, you know, making sure that they understand what they're trying to achieve, making sure that the business does have the processes, making sure the business has the paperwork, making sure that, you know, the customers have got the right contracts. So there is so much that's, that's obvious, but when you're in business, you, you don't need to think about it sometimes because you're, you're running a day-to-day -day basis. What's really common is, is the KPIs of business users, not the KPIs of an acquirer needs to see. And it's really frequent that you see this, this the financial KPIs are being completely different. They're just, you know, and, and you know that the, the, the C-suite or the business owner doesn't need the KPIs the acquirer needs because he knows the business, right? They're like, yeah, but I know I know how profitable I am because I can see that I've, we've, we've made 28 units this week. And it's like, you know what, I get that, but but where's the margin? Well, I know what the margin is. It drops out, you know, in six months' time and always does because you do this, this, this. It's like, okay, get it. But that doesn't work from a crisis perspective, you know. So you, it's sometimes it's as simple as that. It's just, you know, change how you do your, your management information. But unless you spend some time doing it and understanding it, um, you know, we've got, we've got, you know, stories of, of um, there's always there's always war stories. There was a there was a transaction we did a little while ago where there was a big plot of land on a manufacturing site, lovely family-owned business, and right in the middle of the plot of land was a swimming pool-shaped size piece of land that they didn't own in the middle of their land, and it was what their factory was built on top of. And it was like, well, who owns this piece of land? And no one knew. There was this this, this, this like 
you know, square. And so, well, how did that happen? And they were like, wow, well, we built this, bought this piece of land and that piece of land, and we never, we never fixed it. I was like, well, okay, we need to go and fix that. But it, unless you've got an ability to understand, you can look at, a, you know, you can look at land registry title deeds and say, okay, well, there's a problem there. You know, you don't, you don't pick up on this stuff. You know, it's that kind of, it's that kind of rounded knowledge that really helps help clients. Yeah, and 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 I want to I want to ask you just um, as a side note because I'm I'm I I, I really I, I enjoy that part where um, where you're talking about that that there are these sort of nuances when you get to a business and and there are things that the the owner or whoever the shareholders and that haven't thought about because potentially it's a third fourth fifth generation business and 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 i mean the title deeds they probably don't even remember where they stored them yeah. <laughs> but but tell me um multi-generational businesses i mean if you if you look at sort of say third fourth fifth generation um they might be bigger and bigger do, do, are multi-generational businesses um different to the founder owned business i mean multi-generation for me has got a, a, a totally different dynamic in the sense that um the previous generations still seem to have a bit of a hold or there's a legacy element or there's some kind of i don't know what it is but there seems to be a slightly different mentality i don't know if that's the right word uh but yeah, as opposed to owner owner managed owner sold uh, as opposed to third, fourth, fifth generation, would you agree with that? As you've got an experience around that, I mean, you, you, I mean, you yourself had were involved yeah. in the multi generational business. So uh, it's really dangerous to play to 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 to, uh, to paintbrush these kind of these kind of situations um, because they, I, I think, I think they don't subscribe to stereotypes. The stereotype is that. Um, the first generation, the, the founder is wildly successful. The second generation stabilizes the business. The third generation spends all the money. I mean, that is that is the age-old, by the fourth generation, it's gone bust. That is the age-old trope about family businesses, right? And, I'm, and there, is, there is a grain of truth there, okay? So, you know, why, why, why are entrepreneurs successful? It's because they're normally hungry. They're hungry to do something different. They're hungry to be mm. successful. They have something that drives them. You know, and that drive disappears when you're when you're comfortable and your life is, you know, you've got money and you don't need to worry about things. And you know that there is, and you're probably your your that drive for money probably does evaporate a little bit. Um, however, you know, we the, the fourth generation family business we came out of, you know, actually my cousins my cousins took it over, both phenomenally entrepreneurial. I mean, way more than I am, um, and uh, didn't need to be, but. But absolutely were, um, and I and I the difference the difference in that business and other businesses I've seen and something that we've always we always tell our businesses is uh, one ideally one generation sells the business to the next generation doesn't give it to them and what happens is if the next generation actually wants it they'll buy it and if they don't want it they won't because what you need is somebody who's genuinely invested who's genuinely you know, they're saying, okay, if this business is worth 100 million, you know what, I'll pay 100 million for it. And I'll have to pay the debt, and I'll have to cover it. And it'll be really hard work. And I'll make it successful. And that doesn't preclude the previous generation then helping them, you know, it doesn't help doesn't preclude them then, you know, staying on the sidelines and helping, but it does mean that the person who's 
who's transacted has bought the business and controls it and has to live or die by it and the the previous generation are then on the sidelines but can help from a perspective of you know the, the what normally happens what the worst scenarios is where there's a where there's a lack of control that actually passes mm. and i don't mean in terms of legal control because often it's day-to-day control is not not totally i think as you know it's not to do with legal control it's whether it's whether dad or the mom doesn't want to says i'm going to step out and then doesn't yeah and so or whether son says i'll take it over and then doesn't you know or, or you know the, there's a there's a mismatch in expectations and deliverance so one of the things we say is to sell sell you sell it between the generations and if they don't want to buy it then they're not the right people to buy it you know that's that's if they don't see the value of it then are they the right people for the stakeholders for your staff are they the right people to really take that forward that's the question you need to ask yourself. So, so I got a I got a case study. So I've got I've got a client um, that uh, is a family business. Um, it's around thirty odd years, and the father uh, and and the mother they had started the business. They had built it to a really it's an it's a magnificent business, and and they had three sons, and the one son is probably more managerial, less technical. The other one is a really good sales guy. And the third one is is almost like a mini scientist. I mean, he likes to experiment and build things and so on. And it just suits the three of them together. If they were one person, that would make a really good one person to take the business forward. Now you've got three individuals that are, are the sons. They or Each one of them are different in terms of their their outlook in life and yeah. in different stages, their family life as well. So some of them got small kids and one of them is married, et cetera. And that's a very interesting scenario because how does the, how does the, 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 the father step back from not getting himself involved? Because sometimes the brother, the brothers disagree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and uh, <laughs> I mean, the, these are these are real things you get to deal with on, on a day to day basis. So I'm, I'm guessing when you deal with family business. Yes. I mean, I, we, we don't often have the luxury of helping the business at the point it transfers. And, and you wish you did. And, and usually it's um, accountants or lawyers who are involved at that point. And um, we love accountants and lawyers. They make our life immeasurably easier and possible actually i should say but sometimes they're not necessarily the right tool for the job and sometimes sometimes that transfer isn't the right they don't think about it in the right way sometimes so um one of the things that that we have seen work well is in that scenario you have to consider whether the son should be running the business so they don't that doesn't mean they don't have to have the benefit or, or don't don't have to not work don't have to be evacuated from the business but what you can very easily do is put the business in trust so they can have the benefit of the income uh, and they can be employees and they can do the bit they enjoy and 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 this takes some coaching and some time and some um and some emotional uh emotional coaching so so everyone understands what's going on and everyone gets comfortable with this but what we tend to find is that a lot of the kids are, are taking the business over because the parents expect them to yes and therefore they do it because they have the weight of parental expectation and actually sometimes you know you mentioned there's someone who's, who's a, you know mentioned someone who's a, who's a you know a, a genius in, in who's a, a scientist very very few scientists i know actually want to run a business and i'm not a scientist i'm married to one um she wouldn't want to run a business uh, uh and therefore the 
what you should if they're but they're employee if they're employees in the space they want to be in they can add massive value and what you then do is you put a really professional c-suite who manages the business and that's not to say the sons can't sit on the board you know they can't they, they can input strategically they just don't need to be operational you know there's, there's lots of ways of running it like that love it we, we, I had, think a, we, that's, had, a, sorry, we had a family transaction exactly like that where we had a ceo and a pair of brothers and a ceo ran the business and it worked really well. And when it came to when we were acting on the sales side, when we acted on the sales side, the CEO did the whole transaction and stayed with the business because that's what that's what she wanted to do. And the, the son was going to take it out. It was de-risked it from the buyer's perspective. Just worked all over. Love it. Love it. Absolutely love it. There are two more topics I want to cover, and I'm hoping we're going to be able to do it. The one is, um, have you have you seen or experienced sort of multiple exits? In other words, a founder or owner, uh, um, you know, uh, somebody trying to sell their business, but preferring to stay in the business, exiting or doing a partial sale. I mean, sometimes we 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 make the assumption that that the entire hundred percent shareholding would, would is going to pass hands, but maybe the person is still very very keen to carry on. However, they only want to exit partially. Do you do you get involved in that type of thing, uh, doing multiple exits? So again, you know, when the business grows, let's say it's private equity or, or corporate, um, when the business gets to the next level, they can exit again in terms of selling a next chunk of shares. I mean, do you, have you ever seen that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, that's a really common, especially in the. I mean, especially when you look at private equity, you know, roll rollover is is you know. It's, it's just a part of a transaction nowadays. And um, whether that is you exiting on a, on a transactional, on a executive basis, or whether that's just you exiting past your shareholding, what we are seeing is more of that happening with strategic, strategic acquirers, trade acquirers. And that's quite an interesting evolution that we didn't see 15 years ago. So you are now starting to see people sell, not sell a control stake. Let's talk about control transactions where you sell over 50%, where they might sell 55%. And effectively, what they actually look for is partnership. And what, what I think we're starting to see more of, and I don't know if this is the market changing or because of our, to- our specific focus on the market, is people who are younger, you know, in their 40s. Um, I say younger, but you know what I mean? It's not a retirement sale, it's pre-retirement sale, late 30s, 40s, who have spent, you know, 10 years building the business and suddenly realize that they don't want to leave, but they have enough self-awareness to realize that they also aren't the right person to take it from here to here and they need some help whether that is funding whether that is technical help whether that is managerial help whatever that help is mm-hmm. and they go out and say we want to find the right partner and that's when and that's part of that esg piece for us is who is the right partner for you and your business and that's when you really start to think about you know what's the right for customers clients all that kind of good stuff because that's critical to that transaction it's absolutely crucial so yeah you know, we see that we see that more and more and it's it's actually a really nice place to do it in in an, in a impact in a uh, trade transaction strategic transaction because it's not just about the money then and it's, it's much more about the right fit and it's it's uh, from, from on a personal basis it's an interesting transaction to do because it's more complex and there's more people involved and you get in people's heads more and you, yeah you get really involved people and that's that's what we enjoy we really enjoy sort of no, I, that I, works I, for people. I love that i can see the smile on your face so i mean the i think james the for yeah for, for me that's again why ad, really good advisors are so important in this whole process because you need um 
somebody to ask the right questions. You need someone to paint out the scenarios, the what ifs, doing the what ifs. And if you do this, you're probably going to get that. You know, how much of the, the business should you relinquish? What does it mean? And, and what does it actually mean to be to be absorbed into a, a larger corporate entity? You know, are you ready for that? You know, are you psychologically or are you mentally ready for for having a different type of um, arrangement? You know, you might have to start reporting to somebody as opposed to, you know, being your own boss kind of thing. That, yeah, there's a whole, whole lot of dynamics around that there. Um, yeah, uh, the other, the, the last one I wanted to ask you before we, we before I want to ask you more about CAPEQ and, and that is um, you work with corp, corporate uh, acquirers and so on. And, and tell me a bit about sort of the, the, the move these days. And, and I, I see there seems to be a move in that direction. There seems to be more separations, more carve outs um, than before. And I'm, I'm just, just again, I just a very much, I'm just sort of prompting you into coming back with one of your, one of your uh, hot potato answers, but um yeah, I mean, is that true? I mean, are companies saying, look, this part we actually don't need anymore. We're rather going to go in this direction. Is, is our carve-outs and separations, do you get involved in that? Is that something that that is that is you're seeing more of, or is it just very much the same? Um, yeah, I'll be honest, it's not, that's actually not a central part of our business. So we do it, but it's by exception rather than by design. So um, corporate carve-outs... I mean, they're fine, but they, they're very technical. And uh, and it's great. We're more than capable of doing the technical stuff absolutely all day long, mm. but it doesn't usually involve people. And we like working with people. So um, with the right C-suite, we'll absolutely go and give carve-outs. And we've, we've done a couple. We've actually done a couple in Europe this year. Um, the, the the ones, again, and it's, it's a bit difficult because we, you know, we're a boutique, so we don't, uh, we don't see hundreds of corporates the ones we get involved with are the ones where the corporate is absolutely focusing on what they're good at and and divest themselves of the stuff they shouldn't have bought a few years ago um and are trying to find the right home for it but but we're, we're getting involved with those ones where they care about what happens to their clients and their staff um and that's and what's it seems to us that we're seeing more of that I don't have empirical data that supports that. And it's mm -hmm. sometimes you have your own echo chamber on these things. So I'm, I'm not certain that's true. Um, mm -hmm. I hope it's true and it feels true. Whether mm -hmm. it is, I think we probably need another five years of data and, and some hindsight. Yeah. And obviously with, uh, um, I would say, let's call it the fallout of the, la the events of the last few years, we probably still need to see the effect in the market. Yeah in the next three to five, seven years anyway, of where things are going to end up. I mean, interest rates are going up at a, at a, at a pace now and so on. I mean, there's a, a whole lot of <laughs> the challenges coming our way. Well, you've got to, I mean, from an M&A perspective, you've got to wonder, you've got to wonder what, how, what, how, what's going to happen to private equity. Now, how, how is private equity going to, is the dry powder going to evaporate from the market because the LPs have got other places to put their money? You know, when when bond rates start climbing uh, and you can get gilts with the start to provide a very long term secure return on investment, I think private equity have have, um, have had to pay higher multiples to get into businesses nowadays. And perhaps exiting the multiples won't be quite as easy at, at the, high, the higher rates. You know, will we start to see some of that dry powder evaporate and will that change the market? I don't know. Um, there's as much cleverer people than I am in the world to discuss these things, but I, I suspect there'll have to be some effect. I, I can't imagine that there won't be. So you're right. I mean, that's there's a, there's an element there just in terms of increasing interest rates, quite apart from what happened in COVID and all that kind of good stuff and lots of good stuff. 
Yeah, and I think also the fact that um, I think the market has become more competitive in terms of um, the availability of good quality assets to acquire as well has also put a lot of pressure. I think we're going to see some some changes, and it's going to be very interesting to uh, just to watch this this thing play out. So, so James, I mean, I really do want you to come on a future episode and 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 give us an update in terms of where where you are, we are at and so on, but be before we, we we run out of time because we've got a, got a few minutes left i really want you to talk a little bit about cap eq sort of what you do what differentiates you and and how can people get hold of you uh so cap eq capeq.com um what differentiates us i think we covered some of the stuff in terms of we're, we're one of europe's only b corps so we're, we're not just for profit we will um treat our clients ethically and uh, and um and and look at the wider transaction. Um, we are very cross-border. We work in the lower mid-market, so that's transactions typically between 10 and 50 million with, with a little bit either side, um, or 10 to 100 million, probably more accurately right now. Um, we Every transaction we do is, is partner-led uh, by at least one partner on a day-to-day basis. All of our staff are boutiques, so all of our staff are time served. They all have at least 10 years in M&A. Um, we've got, uh, we've got a, a head of research who's a, a qualified lawyer. We've got a transaction support guy. I used to be a partner at a big four firm and has spent 30 years in transaction support in M&A. Um, we've got some amazing staff. Uh, and we really focus on helping clients achieve the right outcome and the best outcome. Um, the staff, the, the partners have all got commercial a significant amount of commercial experience as well as M&A experience. Um, we're FCA regulated, which is important for so many reasons. And we've chosen to do that because I think it's important for clients to have some security. Um, if, you're, mm. if you're thinking about employing an M&A advisor, please look at what being FCA regulated brings and decide whether that's important to you. Um, it should be, and there's all sorts of reasons why it should be. Um, and uh, we have an absolute ton of uh, client feedback. Uh, we aim to have a 100% net promoter score, and that's what we run on at the moment. Um, we, yeah, we, 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 we have a whole litany of clients where we absolutely focus on them and what they need to achieve. Uh, does that kind of cover it in... in in, in very well, actually, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I mean, I've, um, from the, the various discussions we've had, uh, I've been very impressed with with, with your organization. And Excellent. and uh, hopefully we could have more uh, discussions and, um, and and also see how the, how the journey unfolds, because I think this is probably just a snapshot in time uh, because, you know, things do change and, and things do move on. So you please come back on, on, on another show. Um, Larry, actually, Larry, uh, James, um, I'm going to say thank you very much. Um, I've got, um, I'm going to say goodbye to the audience and then I'm going to come back to you. So stay, stay on the line and then, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to chat to you now. Thanks, Alex. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining us for today for our, for our latest episode of 100 Days and Beyond, the podcast where we focus on that, that special fraternity that where, where mergers, acquisitions, um, but especially the value add side of things of of um, of business acquisitions, advisory, and so on. And I, and I think today, especially with the uh, with the company of uh, of James and and the, the the Cap EQ team, which we will be interviewing more of as we go. Um, what I really like about uh, the company and and about this advisory space is if you've got the right advisor, 
you got someone who is well experienced that is in the trenches, but has got loads of experience in terms of uh, multiple transactions, which can reduce the amount of problems and issues you're going to have. It, it sort of gets you around not falling into every single pothole, getting yourself entangled in things that you shouldn't get involved in, and also just getting yourself ready for a proper exit. If it's sell side on the buy side, getting yourself in that strategic position to do the right kind of uh, acquisition to, to grow shareholder value, stakeholder value, but doing it in an ethical way. And I, and I, and I really like that as a, as a, as a, a word that I've got as a takeaway from, from James today. Um, thanks again, James. Thanks to everybody for joining us and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of hundred days and beyond. Hi everybody, this is Dudley again and if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free no-obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk that's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website skillfulpursuit.com.